mobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. Welcome back to Gone Mobile. Today we're joined by Nils Freidenholm, a senior iOS developer over at eBay Classified. How's it going today, Nils? It's good, thanks. Good to be here. Excited about this talk. Yeah, you and me both. This is, I mean, it's definitely no secret that this kind of topic is near and dear to my heart as well. And for anyone who was at Evolve last year or, or started catching up via the videos online, if you weren't there, you, you'll probably recognize Nils from the, the awesome session that he did on testing process and test cloud and, and all that kind of stuff at, at Evolve. Um, it, it took us a bit longer than it should have, admittedly, to get you on the show to chat about all this <laughs> stuff, uh, but better late than never, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's a cool topic as well, and a lot of people seem to be really interested in it. Yeah, that was the one thing that, that really impressed me personally about Evolve last year is that there was a big focus on automation and testing and like a lot of things that to me signal like a real maturity within a, a development community. So for me, that was that was really cool to see. Yeah, yeah, that goes for me too. And I kind of wonder how it took so long on this platform <laughs> to get there. <laughs> yeah, again, better late than never, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so to start things off, can you just talk a little bit about the, the app and the, the team you're working on? Sure. So uh, we are a small team. Uh, three full-time iOS developers and one full-time backend and one that's mixed in between and a QA. And then we're actually maintaining uh, two different apps, one for motors where you can find a new car and another classifieds app where you can buy and sell anything you want. Um, so they have different backends. So we're the team in between two other teams that are maintaining the different websites. And we have to catch up with these guys and make sure we are full featured on mobile as well. Hmm. So then getting into, uh, obviously you, you've been doing a lot of work with automation um, and we're going to dig a lot into that stuff. But to, to set the stage a bit, what were you, what kind of problems were you having on your team um, developing that app or those applications that, that prompted you to make this big push towards automation? Uh, we realized it could take way too long to get out in the market with new features. Anywhere between two to five months would be the process up until this time. And that is just way too slow. If you want to speed up and you want to, our product owners would like to try out new features uh, rather quick. And they can't if you have to spend like a week every time you have to release because you have to do all the manual testing. And the QA would be totally busy and we would have to help the QA doing all the sorry boring manual testing where you do all the manual regression tests not the, f the fun part of your day I to <laughs> say so <laughs> uh, so that was definitely what kicked us into doing all this actually well the team that I joined two and a half years ago they had a, f a few of these uh, UI tests using Calabas already uh, but at that time I would say it was more the proof of concept until it really took off and we got it structured right. Uh, prior to that, it was more not that friendly to maintain. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't get the value out of it as we do now. And then, like you mentioned Calabash there, and obviously you've been doing some work with Test Cloud and, and, and the like. I, were there any other tools that you evaluated as part of the process of setting up this infrastructure on your end? Uh, well, not on this team. They had already taken in uh, Calabash when I joined. Uh, prior to that, I had tried um, 
what's it called? Monkey Talk at that time. I think it has a different name now. Uh, and they have a, uh, well, in that project, uh, product you have to like record uh, whatever you do on screen. You could do some coding behind, but it's more record and do this. And that was a totally different approach. I knew about Calabash at the time, but I thought recording was the way to go because uh, I could have my QA do it. But now I really enjoy the Calabash uh, way of doing it. Do you know with the recording, like was that recording coordinates on the screen and stuff to hit, or was it a little bit more intelligent than that in that tool? Uh, at that time it was recording uh, where on the screen you would hit it because you could see the code it generated and it was uh, different points on the screen and do this and so when you read the code that was generated from the recording you had no idea what was really going on if I had to put in an extra line to assert anything I wanted it was difficult to figure out. And how did that work with I mean, an app like yours is obviously going to be very much content driven. So how do you how do you kind of set up that sort of thing to be predictable enough that you can write you know uh, you know predictable tests around that and still have it be somewhat realistic? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question, and that's an area where we have been doing a lot of experiments uh, in our end to figure out how to get it to run stable because uh, red lights on your test is the worst, it, and <laughs> when you dig into it, it turns out it's that monkey you were searching that was up for sale last week is no longer for sale and then you end up with a false test. Um, so we do have a very cool uh, test environment set up. Um, so we actually have multiple test environments that are duplicated from production servers uh, each weekend. So we do know that there's always going to be iPhones for sale. We can do a previous uh, search on iPhones and make sure we only get iPhone listings uh, up for sale. And when we want to do uh, more specific uh, tests uh, on what's in the UI, we do create uh, the listings we need as part of the setup in the test. So we do let the test itself generate the data that we want to make sure is actually there afterwards. That's not where we started. Uh, we would rely on data that has to be on the QA environment, and it took quite a lot of maintaining and time to make sure it was already there. For sure. And and before we dig too much into that, I might have gotten a little ahead of myself. Like, I, I would love to hear um, at a little bit of a higher level, like the, the types of testing that you're doing over on your team, you know, the split. It's always difficult to come up with the split between manual and automation and, and the types of automation that you want to do. So I'd be interested in hearing a, a little bit of an overview of how you're approaching testing in general. Uh, it's a uh, risk-based, and I'm sure my Q&A guy on the team could talk a lot about that. But uh, so they have a risk map on the most risky areas in in the app, of course, and that's where we focus most of our tests. That's also where we maybe later we're going to talk about how to make sure they run fast and not run all the tests all the time. But we do make sure that the most uh, risky areas get a lot of tests run after each commit, whereas areas like info pages and other pages that aren't that risk uh, on the risk map, uh, they don't get that many tests. Um, and then we make sure to focus on what's realistic to test and where we can benefit from it. Uh, so we don't want to invent too many and invent too many haggy ways to, mm -hmm. to do the test. Uh, it has to be easy on the platform as it is uh, to write the test. Otherwise, we'll get more out of our time having a few things we have to test manually. 
And how big of a, a test suite have you worked up on the automation side? Uh, for the classifieds app, which is uh, where the most interesting part is the most, uh, where we have the most tests and the most features, we uh, have, well, actually, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it takes about 25 minutes for the test to run after each commit and an hour and 15 minutes when it's running the whole test suite at night. Hmm. Uh, in numbers, I, I don't really know. That's another interesting part where you would sometimes, uh, if you were to split your test really well, you would make smaller scenarios, but we tend to make them a little bit larger to get rid of the overhead of starting a new scenario and get the right state of the app before we do the testing. Uh, so we normally you would probably approach it by doing small scenarios, create the listing, uh, assert of something is right, and then another scenario that is testing something else, but we tend to stack them up a little bit in, in a larger scenario uh, to avoid the overhead of setting up the whole thing. Hmm. Have you found that that holds you back at all? Because you could you could potentially miss finding out about more bugs that kind of come later in the process if you short-circuit it at the, the beginning of the flow. Um, is that something that, that's been a problem or you found it more, more helpful to have everything kind of grouped together? Uh, so far we find it helpful and so the stuff that we do shortcut using this backdoor feature, for example, is uh, of course tested in other real scenarios. Um, so we make sure that we do have the regression test on those areas as well, but we don't do login uh, in the UI for each scenario. We have specific login tests that will mm. make sure we test the UI, but for the others that require us the user to be locked in will just use this backdoor feature. And you mentioned um, using Calabash and that kind of being established on your team before you even got there. So obviously that's that was definitely using the, the Ruby driver for all of that. Have you since switched over to using C Sharp or are you still using Ruby to drive all of your UI tests? We're still using a Ruby to, to drive them. Um, although we all the backend we have is in C Sharp, uh, we haven't seen the win that we will get from switching yet. Um, I know they have some where you can run it more in parallel when you run the cloud, so your test will run fast, and you can't do that from the Ruby part of it yet. So we could get a little speed gain in the cloud, but but also we, we do like the, the Ruby way of it, and, and the Cucumber part, of course, we could do a spec flow and mm. using that way. But so far, we actually do like the Cucumber part, and that our QA guy can actually read the test, and we can talk about it with him that so if this is what we cover do you think we uh, all the way around in your risk map is this what's supposed to be covered by a ui test hmm. so you mentioned that um you know you run some tests every commit and that takes about 25 minutes or so and then your nightly tests take a lot longer how do you go about deciding what how to split that up like what tests are critical to run every commit versus something you run every night or every so often uh that's also a uh, well, first when we made the big split, once we, on the motor side, we don't have this split because the test suite is small enough to run after each commit. But once we got up to, I think it was for about 40 or 45 minutes on the classified tab, we sat down with our QI, uh, QA and, uh, and decided what parts. So in each feature file, we looked at, so which scenarios should be run after each commit, what will cover the most and then we used uh, our code coverage on the Jenkins server to verify that even though we took out 
40 minutes of testing we only dropped in 10-12% in code coverage uh, or even less I think so they were all the other tests that we took out are just testing variations of what we already have in the commit uh, so the code coverage was really helpful in that way and how are you, how do you measure code coverage when it comes to UI testing? I mean, it, it it makes a lot of sense when you're you're talking about you know class libraries and normal unit testing and stuff. But uh, how does that play into UI testing? Uh, well, the way we do it is actually the same way. It, uh, we just go in and look in our controllers and make sure that we get the uh, the cores that we do want. Uh, we know that there are some alerts that we can uh, like no network. That's when we talked about what we make. So we don't want to invent something that can provoke a no network error. We can live with uh, putting in a fly mode manual and make sure that we haven't screwed up that part. <laughs> um, I think I lost track, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's quite all right. Um, and then kind of digging into like getting a little more into the implementation type level, I mean, UI tests and whether you're talking about apps or Windows apps or um, like web apps or anything, UI tests are notoriously brittle. And, you know, the classic scenario is that you write up a whole bunch of UI tests, they start failing often enough as things change, and eventually you start ignoring them. Like, have you found any particularly good approaches to, to building up a, a UI testing code base that is maintainable and that keeps, you know, when something goes red, you, you don't just dread having to go look into what happened or you assume that it was, it's being flaky? Uh, we have definitely been at the flaky part and it bubbles up every now and then. We have one hour test that turns in to be flaky and then we'll investigate. Um, so the approach we have now is to structure the code really well. So we're using uh, the page objects, um, making sure that we only have small Ruby classes, knowing exactly how to uh, play with a certain area of the screen or a whole page uh, in the app. So that's where we'll go look for it. And then Calabash, and I think it's, well, it goes for the UI test and Xamarin as well, have all these weight helpers that really helped a lot. We used to be in the sleep mode <laughs> prior to this, so we would sleep and the timing would be off on the build server compared to the developer machine. And then <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the road to hell, so to speak. Um, so now we are using the wait for, and we're getting pretty good at that. We, I think we still have a few what would now be referred to as legacy tests that we haven't been back to and, and make sure they're up to speed. Um, but they haven't been flaky, so um, that's one of the downsides actually to what I said earlier about uh, putting more into each scenario because it, it turns out as the longer the simulator, uh, the iOS simulator at least runs, the more flaky it can get. So <laughs> you could start seeing potential errors coming from the whole platform and not from our test suddenly will just drop the connection to the Calabash server and then you're lost. <laughs> well, um, well, that actually gets to, to another thing that I was definitely going to bring up in that like I, I've had many a situation where it's really just the underlying iOS UI automation stuff or the simulator itself just being wonky on me and not my tests. Um, is that something that you try and write your test to cater for to maybe retry a certain amount of times or do you just say it you know, it failed, we could try running again if it looks like it was their fault. Uh, we do a rerun. Uh, so Cucumber has a rerun uh, output uh, where it's going to collect all the scenarios that failed and we rerun them just once. And 
and that improved a lot together with the waiting instead of sleeping. And so we do give them one more try when they fail and mm. lately they have been running pretty stable. Well, except now when I look at my Jenkins screen right now, it's <laughs> kind of red, but that's because we had a disk running full this morning. So the whole queue was stacked up. <laughs> um, but, but they do run quite stable now um, and they should because we did spend quite some time always looking into it and then it will say one scenario out of 71 scenarios failed mm -hmm. and you'll have a look and say oh it's, the, it's that normal test that always fails but it someday it's gonna hide a really serious bug somewhere uh, so we we do take it serious now right right and and that's kind of the key that i found it's once you start ignoring red tests then you may as well not have them running at all so it's yeah. it's really easy to fall into that trap of oh it's their fault you know i'm sure it's i'm sure it's really working under the hood uh, what's working quite well for us now is first of all we have a big monitor in our team space uh, that shows uh, the jenkins status all the time uh, on our master branch at least and then we're using a uh, slack now to inform mm -hmm. the developers when something else has failed and uh, so we have a little slack room a uh, private room for that in our team where we can discuss say so who's going to look into this and mention and blame someone else and <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it works a lot better than just prior to slack we just got an email and everybody had their own email rule set up so it just end up in a subfolder <laughs> and people would just empty that subfolder every week just deleting everything <laughs> So now, now it's in our faces, and and we can take it to take action right after it has failed. That's true. It, as long as developers don't have a way to turn off that alert in Slack, you'll you'll get them looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then to just to revisit a, a point from before, because I want to make sure that um, for one, I'm understanding it, and also I think it's a something like worth kind of chatting through. So you'd mentioned in the. It, talking about how you architect things and, and make uh, reusable logic for different screens. Um, if, if I'm understanding what you guys are doing correctly, that's that's more or less like in in the web testing world, that would be called like the page object model or, or something along those lines where you have sort of like objects that just roughly have like properties and methods that correspond to things on the screen so that tests don't need to know how to find an element. They just need to know what they want to do. Is that Am I, am I understanding right that that's what you're you're doing as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we uh, so besides making sure we keep the logic in in the right areas, and of course they can uh, inherit from a base somewhere that has all the the generic logic that we normally do in the app. We actually also invest uh, quite a lot of time in writing uh, the scenarios. So in the cucumber gherkin syntax, we do make sure that we try to explain the user behavior and not the implementation of what he's doing, hmm. which is uh, becoming quite useful now uh, because at Evolve I said that we could do this on iOS and Android, but uh, up until now we have actually only been running our tests on iOS, but now <laughs> we are rebuilding uh, or getting the Android app rebuilt. And one of the things that we put in is to make sure all our test scenarios can now also run on Android by implementing the same paid objects uh, in Android. So we only have to change the query language uh, used in, in Calabash under the hood. Hmm. And with this, uh, it's a little difficult. I'm here using my hands trying to explain the architecture, but, uh, <laughs> but you said it quite well with the uh, paid objects uh, referring to normally one page where you, so also when a developer has to go in and extend a new feature or a new button, at a certain page in the app, 
they know exactly what Ruby class in this case to go, uh, Ruby page objects uh, class to go and, and extend and how to press the button. And like outside of that, have there been any other like common pitfalls or, or mistakes you've kind of realized after doing a lot of these tests um, when implementing these, these automated tests and, you know, or any like best practices that you can kind of speak to besides the, the page object model type approach for, for building out a maintainable set of tests? Uh, I would definitely put that one on top. And then the other one is to, uh, to use the, the backdoor feature to speed up your test. Because uh, once you get going and you start writing a lot of tests, uh, it will kind of you'll get a little bit irritated by seeing how slow it finally is. <laughs> so when when once you run all these tests and you want to get that rapid feedback, that's what you build all this for, so you know if you made a mistake or not. Um, so speeding up and and doing as much lo as much logic you can using the backdoor without compromising what you're actually trying to test. Uh, that's another great approach that we are doing heavily now. In fact, just the other day I refactored one of the the tests that would normally fail every now the one of the flaky tests we had, um, which is supposed to go to a certain listing and and our seller and buyer can chat on the listing asking, uh, so what about this and these features? And the test would often fail uh, trying to search for the new created listing just to get there and start writing. But we can uh, we can use URL schemes in our app to open to a specific listing. So I shortcutted the test instead of doing a search in the app. We now just open straight to, to the page we want to go to. And that's where the test actually starts. And that made the test much more stable. What does that code look like to, to implement these back doors? Is this something that you, know, you spend a lot of uh, time covering in the app itself that you you invoke from the test or how do, how do you actually implement it? a simple example of that uh, so we are only using the backdoor to invoke features that is already in the app uh, uh, but instead of doing the UI uh, having to type your username and password we'll just invoke the same uh, basically the same service that will invoke the server and sending credentials and then get your OAuth token back that's what we'll do in the back door. So we can hit a method in our app delegate on iOS um, with a few arguments and then do the logic and, and put the app in the state behind the scenes. And do you have a way to strip that out when you ship the app or does that stay in there? Yeah, for uh, well, we haven't done the back door on Android yet, so I'm not quite sure how that works. But on iOS, uh, the back door is only available on our Calabash target and not on the target that we ship to the app store. So then let's dig a little bit into device testing, which is obviously where and you've done a lot of speaking on test cloud now, um, but just in general, like how much, how much of your testing is on real devices versus simulators and emulators? Uh, not all our tests are on the, uh, on real devices yet. That's, that's what we're aiming for. Uh, we're still waiting for, uh, for Samurai test cloud to open up a proxy solution, which will help us quite a lot because we can create listings and create users in our production environment from the test cloud. <laughs> we have to make sure the test cloud can actually run in our test environment. And for that, we're waiting for a proxy solution. Um, while we've been waiting, we have, we started to discuss if we should make a change in the app. So instead of expecting a proxy, we could use a direct URL to our test environment from 
the test cloud instead. Uh, but we didn't want to make those changes in our app if a proxy solution was was able to to help us out. Um, because we do see, especially when yeah, now iOS 9 is on the way, uh, the, we haven't talked about it, but in our Jenkins environment, we only run the latest simulator, which is for now 8 something 3. And so we don't see all the auto layout errors that we can actually make that will work perfect on iOS 8, but screw up on iOS 7. For that, we that's where we need the cloud to make sure things look right. And we haven't invoked a method that's no longer available on, on old iOS. Hmm. And so we do rely on the cloud to tell us this, and we can go in and get this great overview of screenshots, making sure, and actually show it to the UX and say, see, this is, we have a little compromise here in iOS 7. Can you live with that, or should we go and change it? Um, but we don't run the whole test suite there yet. So do you run your UI, like your automated test suite, locally on any physical devices? Uh, nope. Uh, not from Jenkins, at least. Sometimes we can do it, uh, just run, uh, hook up your device to my developer machine and and run uh, on that device if that's something specific I want to see, but that's something we rarely do. We do just use the simulator at the office and then trust the cloud for, for the real device part. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Raygun. Raygun is an essential tool for every developer, helping you detect and diagnose your errors in real time so your team can fix bugs faster. Just a few lines of code is all it takes to get started, and you'll be amazed how quickly you start receiving reports from all of your apps. Why wait for frustrated users to notify you when they hit a bug, and then spend your time digging through log files? Raygun notifies you immediately and with all the information you need. Raygun keeps everyone informed, so whether you have 1 or 100 developers, you'll get everything you need to become an awesome development team. Start your free trial today at raygun.io, and make sure to thank them for sponsoring Gone Mobile. How many devices do you guys keep in-house for for either you know local automated testing or even manual testing from your, your QA team? Uh, interesting question. In numbers, I know we have you know, <laughs> week of pages somewhere. We have a nice list, uh, but it's our QA uh, guy who keeps track of those. So he knows when we can start updating to the new iOS 9 beta and still cover all the <laughs> OSs that we, we want to. I would say around, I don't know, 15 to 20 devices. Because um, we do sometimes do manual test runs as well before release. Uh, we might spend one or two hours and bring in some people from customer support and other teams to help us out. Because people are really uh, people are really good at doing the unexpected, and the <laughs> tests the tests always do the expected part since we coded it ourselves. Um, so they can still help us find a weird box that we couldn't automate. Do you find yourself taking those scenarios that people find by doing weird stuff in the app manually and creating automated tests from those? Yeah, in areas where it makes sense. Um, so I can happily admit that I caused a, a lot of crashes in uh, one of our recent releases <laughs> that we had missed in a UI test. Um, a specific search criteria in our Motors app uh, started to fail whenever people tried to uh, enable it. And it turned out that was a little bit different than all the other search criteria, and we had missed that in our UI test. So of course we went and added a UI test that would go to that specific criteria right after we found the bug. First <laughs> to verify that we could reproduce it and then fix it, and and now we are 
home safe with that one. Yeah, but we do also get reports about uh, things that we can't really automate, uh, like flipping your, go in the basement while you flip your iPhone around a few times and triple tap a button while the network <laughs> is going. Uh, that's not something we want to spend time trying to automate. Right, right. Yeah, I've always said that, you know, you should focus your manual testing on like letting people what they do best, which is just weird, <laughs> weird stuff and screw things up, right? Yeah, yeah. Have you found, because uh, obviously you're doing a lot of your testing on simulators and emulators, have you found a significant difference um, between when you run tests on those and when you eventually take those over to devices? Or have you found those to be more or less like a stable target for you or a, a reliable target rather? Uh, actually, I would say the cloud is uh, more reliable than the, the simulator. <laughs> uh, so once we see all tests are green on the simulators, we are pretty sure that it will run well in the cloud as well, unless it's a platform or a, a device or a specific uh, crash or bug we'll see, which is what we're hoping to that will discover for us. But the cloud runs really stable and uh, the test runs really stable on the devices as well, hmm. which is great because sometimes you're ready to call Apple and say, hey, why do you keep screwing up the simulator? Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they'll answer the call too. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> For example, so we uh, these apps are only in the Danish market and we do have special characters on the keyboard. Uh, not that long ago, I would say it was iOS 8.2 maybe. We had to change our tests that would actually write specific uh, characters because they have totally screwed up the, the keyboard in the simulator, you can no longer have a Danish keyboard layout uh, set up when the app starts. Uh, it can be installed. I talked to uh, Joshua Moody from Samarin about it a few times and he tried to hack a few things and we couldn't get it working. So I just had to give up and change our <laughs> test to, to use English characters, which is sad. <laughs> Wait, so you're, what you're trying to say is that not everyone uses an English keyboard out there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And apparently, well, they do in Cupertino, I would say, so, so it works <laughs> fine for them. <laughs> so have you found there's anything in your apps that you can't really test in Test Cloud? Is there any kind of functionality that you run into that? Uh, not yet. But then again, we still have, uh, for example, uh, no, we do location-based search, actually. Um, but still, we have to. We still have a lot of tests we would like to enable that would require us to use the test environment. That's our next next big goal is to to be able to run those tests from the cloud as well, uh, so we get more advantages out of the the cloud that we do now. Hmm. For sure. And how like how many devices um, are you like running things on in the cloud? Are you do you basically just check all the boxes you can and run on like the what are the fifteen hundred devices or whatever it is now, or do you do you limit it down a little bit? Uh, we use our analytics to see what our customers use the most, and then we make a a, a list from devices that would make sense. Because um, well, you pay by the minute or however that's structured in the cloud, so you don't want to run thousand hours a week just because you can select that many devices. So we do take all the popular models that we can see our users have the most and then leave the rest uh, out of the equation. Hmm. Uh, so that, work, that works quite well. I know uh, we have talked to Samarin about this, so to make uh, device selection easier in the cloud. And I think they are also trying to, to figure out cooler ways to to get reports about what 
what are the most popular devices to make it easier for, for us users to, to say, I just want to run these tests on the most popular devices uh, as it is right now. And I think there's something you can select, you know, the, te the top 10 market share devices or something like that. Okay, th yeah, they might already have part of that, yeah. Right, but whose market share is that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that's interesting as well. If, if that's a US with the English keyboard, you know, then that's... <laughs> <laughs> you just need to move all your operations over here and, and just yeah. for, forget other keyboards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so is your is your app multilingual then, or is it just, just Danish? It, it's uh, just Danish, uh, which of course would have brought other interesting uh, test scenarios in if we had multiple languages. Uh, but that's not a... A concern that we have right now. Hmm. Yeah, that's not something I've I've personally tried to do much of either. So I was curious about it, but um, it sounds like yeah. you have, you haven't had to tackle that yet. No, I could see lots of interesting challenges that you want to <laughs> test. That labels don't get too long in a different language and all these kind of cool stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear more about people who have solved these kind of problems. Yeah. Well, if you're out there and you've done it, let us know. We'll do an episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that could be quite interesting. So then, I mean, we've covered like a lot of uh, your testing approach and, and how you've automated this stuff and put it into Jenkins. Uh, I would love to also dig into um, like how you're handling release management on your side. Like I, I found myself that it's a topic that um, there, there just isn't a whole lot. I haven't seen a whole lot of companies out there really talking about how they're managing mobile app releases and, and pushing things to the store and even down to things like branching strategies and, and all of that. Cause I, I've found that it, it ends up being a lot harder to do that stuff in, in the app world than it is in, you know, the, the normal desktop world. Um, I don't know how much you can speak to what you're doing over there. It's a very interesting topic as well. And not, it's not so technical as the other part that we have called, but I find it very interesting. Um, because one thing we have seen over the at least past two years is that we had to get our product owners used to this way of thinking as well. They had gotten into just like we had that mobile is something where it takes a long time to get it out on the market. So we had to make some long plans and cover a lot of features in one release. And so they had to get used to their planning as well, saying, how can we split this up? What do we want to get out to the customers next? And what's after that? And and so for now, we can really, we do releases once or twice a month on each app um, uh, uh, for iOS. Um, so we do let our product owners uh, handle the iTunes Connect, uh, preparing the apps so they can write whatever they find is new. Mm -hmm. And then we'll just upload the binary. Uh, so for branching strategies, we do uh, feature branches. So every time we work on a new feature, we'll branch out and we'll finish it. And once it, with finish, I mean, all the tests are green on that branch and we had done the manual testing that's required as well. And we'll merge it into our master branch and maybe for that uh, sprint, the product owner will say, let's release this, it's a cool feature. Or they can say, hey, let's hold up and we need to fix these few bugs and then we'll let it go. So it does actually feel very agile uh, right <laughs> now, except for the whole waiting process in the app store with Apple uh, at least. but. But we can upload uh, from our master branch whenever it's green. Um, just like everybody says, that's what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> uh, I know it's it's not how apps normally work. Um, yeah, so the product owners has to, had to start understanding this as well. And they have taken that really serious now. And they're really good at, uh, 
where we help each other of course and but trying to structure releases what makes sense to release next and um, one thing that has helped being able to do this is of course uh, the automated update from app stores now that we can see or guessing most people are using now um because we can see a high a fast adoption rate whenever we put out a new release uh, people don't have to make an effort to actually get it it's just on the phone the next day with a blue dot and then they're happy with the new features hmm. which also means that we do spend uh, almost no time adding new uh, images from the app to iTunes uh, or the App Store. We'll just leave uh, the core features in there and make sure that we can brand the new features within the app when it starts up like a lot of apps do saying this is new in this one so we can teach the users how they can actually use the new feature because nobody I would say <laughs> existing users don't really go into the App Store to look what's new in your update. <laughs> they expect the app to tell it themselves. Right, right. And in the case that you mentioned before of, um, like, let's say that you, you merge the new, you know, feature X into the master branch, and then there were there's some bugs. So obviously, you don't want to to release that until those bugs are fixed. Would you would you generally hold off until say the, the next sprint kind of comes to a completion to do a release? Or would you have something in the middle there? Uh, if we do have a bug on the master branch before release, uh, our process has failed somewhere else, I would say. Uh, hmm. But uh, the story that I mentioned where I screwed up the search criteria. Uh, so from the master branch, we actually merge that one onto a branch we call Next, which is actually the current one in the App Store. <laughs> uh, and that's from where, that's where we do our release from. So if a bug turns up uh, on the live app, we'll fix it on the Next branch and put a new one out right away, uh, unless we knew that the master branch was ready for release, but that might be waiting for something else, a new feature on the website to be complete as well. Hmm. And which is something that we have the timing issue. Sometimes new features has to go out live on mobile and web at the same time. So hmm. that sometimes puts our schedule uh, close to the websites, what they're doing. But generally I would say our master branch is always green and ready to release from. I know it sounds like a saint, <laughs> thing, but but it, it is actually true and that's what we are aiming for and even smaller bugs we now uh, do feature branches for uh, on that note I should say that we have also automated our whole Jenkins setup so whenever we do create a feature branch all the jobs for running the automated test are created as well and we also do a App upload uh, from that feature branch to Hockey App with the branch name in Hockey App, so our, uh, all people interested can get it from Hockey App. And once we delete the feature branch after it's been merged, uh, all the jobs and the Hockey App is deleted as well. So it's no overhead for us as developers to branch out, do a little thing, and then test it and, and merge it back in. And then what about the the upload process to say iTunes or Google Play? Um, I don't know if. Do you guys just have iOS and Android, or are you managing any other platforms? Uh, only iOS and and Android, but that uh, Android is not up to speed uh, with these uh, rapid releases yet. Okay. Um, so then, you know, just for, for iOS then, maybe, like, are you doing any sort of automation for uploading there, or do you, uh, is that still kind of done manually from a developer machine? Uh, it's done partly manually. It's uh, from our Jenkins server, uh, I can do the actually whole code signing and all this and create the, I always get it wrong, the IPA file. <laughs> right. Uh, and then we'll just uh, upload it uh, 
with Apple's, uh, what's that tool called? Yeah, the mm. uploader tool that comes with Xcode. And I did hear your podcast about Fastlane, and mm. and that could be something to look into. But since, as I mentioned, we don't have that many images that we do change, and we only have it in one language, uh, it actually is just the click of a, starting a job and Jenkins getting the file uploaded, and that's that's our part of the, the job of uploading. Hmm. So once you... But no, it, it, yeah, no sorry. I was just going to highlight that it's definitely not done from a developer machine because that would be too risky. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you take one thing away from this conversation, that should be it. Like, you shouldn't yeah. be uploading things that are from your local machine to app definitely. stores. Yeah. <laughs> so once your app is in the store, um, you know, monitoring your app and, and knowing what's going on is, is part of the whole, you know, good app experience. What do you guys use to actually do monitoring, like crash reporting and feedback from customers? Uh, we're using a, a criticism and that's part of it. So we have a little checklist whenever we do releases and we let it the stick go around to people on the team who's uh, responsible for a release. So one part is that you, you upload it and you wait for the whole review process and then we release it and we'll have criticism running on the big screen uh, changing between how Jenkins is doing and how criticism is looking and we can set up alerts being notified if something critical has happened like a big uh, rise in a number of crashes and we do monitor that uh, after each release because it's a lot easier to have a thousand and a thousand of people helping testing uh, <laughs> the weird bugs that because yeah that should be another thing you should take away here even though you do all this automated testing there will still be bugs in the end <laughs> no, no matter how you do it um, so we do monitor after each release uh, and new crashes um, will show right away. Uh, like, I mean, people with this high adoption rate, uh, fast adoption rate with automated updates, you'll see really fast if the curve is skyrocketing with number yeah. of crashes. Right, and that's that's kind of the, the downside of, of all this stuff is that you could really quickly release an update that you can't pull back that is potentially filled with a bunch of bugs. So you yes. should... You should you shouldn't have to wait for your uh, for your users to come screaming at you. You should probably know before they start screaming. <laughs> yes, uh, and luckily that's where we are now. We can take, uh, for instance, that again that search criteria. There was something that we could actually fix from the server side, just mm. leaving it out for a while. Although people complained that they couldn't use it, it was better than everybody crashed trying to use it. Right, and then we could do the app fix and and re-enable it from the server side. And I think we we noticed the crash before uh, customer support started getting uh, notifications about people complaining. So then, what's on what's on your roadmap for future improvements? I mean, it sounds like you have a a pretty awesome solution in place now. I mean, you're bringing you mentioned bringing Android up to speed, um, up to par with with where your iOS stuff is at. Is there anything else in in particular you have your site set on? Uh, yeah, so Android is one thing, and I'm sure that will notify us of things that we have done wrong, uh, where we have anticipated that we could reuse tests across platforms. I'm sure once we start enabling all the tests on Android, we'll have to go back and refactor some page objects area and some of the test scenarios. That will be interesting to look into. And another big thing on the roadmap is, as we talked about, uh, enabling almost all our tests uh, to run in the test cloud uh, on real devices as well that will be the next major goal for us because uh, we do have a really stable 
automated setup on our Jenkins server now, um, which we're happy with. So the next thing is is doing uh, the test cloud. And of course, iOS 9 is coming up, <laughs> and it, it's like a, you know how Christmas is coming each year, so it's the iOS versions, and it's very certain that it's going to break uh, the way <laughs> Calabash is working and the new OS uh, it's running on. So I'm sure Samurai is busy now preparing and uh, trying out beta releases. And then we'll have some stuff to do because Apple has for sure broken something else in the simulator that's not working the way it used to. <laughs> <laughs> so that yeah, each year we have a few weeks where our tests are a bit unstable until we get fully updated and running and building with the new SDK and the tests are green again. So you figured this all out the hard way, and there's a lot of uh, components to your setup. I can imagine just talking about it. What? do you think some good advice would be to someone who's just getting started now? Uh, what do they need to start with? What do they need to put in their environment? And how do they get to where you are? Uh, well, I think it's important not to try to eat the whole elephant at once. Um, <laughs> so it has taken us some years to get where we are. And of course, I hope like a chat like this can help people up to speed uh, quicker, but they shouldn't try to take it all in at once. I would say start with Take out a few risky areas in your app and, and try to uh, write some really good tests, not just making sure you can click a button, but do the whole well-structured uh, approach to it, whether you're using uh, the Ruby way or the C-sharp way with some UI test, if those are the tools you're looking into. Make sure it's well-structured and they run green 100 out of 100 times. And then make sure that you're uh, CI environment. Uh, I can recommend Greg's talk from uh, <laughs> from Evol as well about setting up the the CI part. Uh, he touched a lot more details about that because uh, that's really important as well. That so get the basics running in a few areas before you start to expand. Otherwise, you'll break your neck uh, with slow tests and failing tests, and you would say, "Hey, this is never going to work," and then you will give up. <laughs> so get get a successful uh, in a few areas and and enjoy that for a while, and then start expanding. Yep, and one green test is better than a hundred ignored ones. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, if you start ignoring them with the broken windows, you should just uh, delete your whole test project again and just uh, go back to manual testing. <laughs> I think you should either do it all the way or, or don't do it at all. Wise words. Well, <laughs> Nils, thanks so much for taking the time today to chat. I think this was a really awesome overview of all this stuff. Well, thanks for having me here. It's interesting, and I appreciate it inviting me here happy to have you and thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll see you next time on gone mobile <laughs>